This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Wiser Books. Wiser Books is celebrating 60 years of publishing the very best in occult and esoterica. You can check out their extensive and inspiring range of reading material by going to wiserbooks.com. That's W-E-I-S-E-R books.com. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. to the witch wave guys my book waking the witch reflections on women magic and power is finally out now and i want to shout it to the moon i put so much time and work and heart into this book and i really hope that you like it it's my love letter to the archetype of the witch and my attempt to weave together the threads of witches in history, fictional witches, witchy pop culture and politics and fashion and spirituality, and a bit of my own personal story, too. It's unapologetically feminist and explores the ways in which witches reflect our fears and our fantasies about female power. It talks about religion and magic, art and activism, sex and death, the spirit and the body, and delves into what it means to be a woman or femme in a world that still views the feminine as threatening. And it celebrates the many ways that people have come to identify with the witch or as witches. It's a serious, complicated topic, but written about in a fun and uplifting way. And my intention for Waking the Witch was to write the book that I wish existed a book where icons like Hermione and Beyonce and Leonora Carrington and Abigail Williams and Starhawk and RuPaul, of course, could all be viewed as part of the same witchy spectrum, each contributing to expanding our notions about what witches are and why they matter. Now, this is a special episode of The Witch Wave, because I'm going to be talking in more depth about the book and some of its content, but I felt kind of weird doing that all by myself, so I decided to invite the hosts of another witch podcast called Missing Witches to be on today's show so that we could interview each other and ultimately nerd out about witches and witchcraft and what it all means. But I also want to take a moment to acknowledge you wonderful listeners and those of you who have read my writing and shown up to my various projects and events over the years. 
I simply wouldn't have been able to get this book written without you. And I've learned so much from your questions and recommendations and stories and encounters. This book is certainly not meant to be the last word on witches. I don't think it could be even if I wanted it to be because the archetype of the witch is so vast and there is so much more to say about it. But I'm so thrilled that I get to offer this contribution to the conversation. For those of you who might still be on the fence about reading the book, I totally understand you are all very busy people, but you might be interested in reading an exclusive excerpt of it, which is on the time.com website right now. Having said all that, stepping away from my day job to start this podcast and write this book was an enormous leap of faith. And it was scary and exciting and exhilarating and nerve-wracking. And I still don't know how it's all going to turn out or where it's going to lead. But you've heard me talk about following the trail of cosmic breadcrumbs before. So I feel compelled to share an anecdote with you. On my last day of work at my job, which was in June of 2017... The head of my department was in town, and he gave me a bottle of wine as a lovely send-off. And this bottle was by Stag's Leap Winery, and the wine was called Artemis. Now, some of you may know that Artemis is the Greek goddess of the moon, the hunt, the wild, independence, and self-belonging. And she is a deity that has been precious to me since I was a teenager. But my boss had no idea that I loved her. And there's a good chance he didn't even know what the word Artemis meant. But I took him giving me this bottle of Artemis wine as Artemis's way of signaling to me that I was on the right path, making the right decisions, and trusting my own vision and call for independence, and that it was absolutely what I was supposed to be doing at that moment in my life. And if that wasn't enough, the next morning, my first morning of liberation, I woke up and the clock radio was playing NPR and the song that was on as background music for the news segment was Jonathan Richmond's Because Her Beauty is Raw and Wild. Now, Jonathan Richmond is one of my very favorite musicians and he's such a holy trickster himself. But if that wasn't enough... The lyrics to the song say, Because her beauty is raw and wild, Of all the stars, she's at the core. Well, she don't need to put nothing in her hair, It's raw and wild like her. Well, she don't need to put nothing in her hair, Curly and wild, just like her. Now, if that's not an Artemisian song, I don't know what is. Synchronicities and symbols like these are the ways in which spirit speaks to us. Dreams, patterns, coincidences, artwork. Overhearing a song or snippet of conversation at just the right moment. 
I believe these are all vehicles through which we can receive divine communication and clues that help us on our journey. We just have to pay attention and notice them. So I want to thank the goddess Artemis for her affirmation and blessings. And even though my path has been far from arrow straight, I'm definitely feeling right on target. I can't wait to share my book with you. And I'm so excited to share the conversation that you're about to hear between me and the wise women behind the Missing Witches podcast about all things witch. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on The Witch Wire. Who is it? Witches. Today, we've got two very similar notes, so I'm going to read a little bit of them both. Amber writes, I'm having a hard time about which deity to connect to. How did you find the one for you? And Rosie writes, I've always wanted to work with deities, but I've never been drawn towards any one god or even any single pantheon. A lot of other witches I know saw or felt signs that a specific god was calling them, but nothing like that has ever happened to me. I thought about doing some research and bringing gods I think are cool into my worship, but that feels disrespectful to me. I've always felt like choosing to worship a deity was an all-or-nothing, ride-or-die sort of thing, and that once you've devoted yourself, it would be an insult to change your mind later. Is shopping around for pantheons and deities okay? Is it disrespectful to call upon or leave offerings for gods you aren't fully devoted to? And do you have any advice on making your first contact with them? Hello, hello, Amber and Rosie. Thank you both for your questions. I'm going to try and answer these sort of in reverse. First, by saying that you absolutely don't have to feel like you are bound to only one deity forever and ever. At different points in my life, I feel like certain deities or stories have been more resonant than others. Someone like Artemis, I've loved for so long, so she does tend to be one of my primary ones, but even that relationship changes shape and goes through phases. She's been on my altar or represented in my home or on my body since I was a kid. And yet there are plenty of periods in my life when I discovered new goddesses or gods that I would give my attention to as well, sometimes even more than I was paying attention to Artemis. I can only speak for myself, but I personally have dozens of deities represented all over our apartment, and I think of them as guides, but also friends. And just like you might have friends that you are really close to and love and have a tight-knit relationship with, so too do I have deities like Artemis that I'm really, really close to. 
But you know how you also have those friends that you might not see every week, but you still love to go to concerts with, or someone you don't necessarily tell all your secrets to, but you really like discussing politics with them, or even your friend who just really, really makes you laugh whenever you run into them at a party. For me, it's the same way with deities. I don't ever neglect my best friends or the deities I feel closest to, and I work to actively maintain those relationships. But I also have some deities that I call on when I am writing, or when I'm looking to tap into my more nurturing side, or when I just need an extra charge of romance or beauty. And also, there are some deities who have turned up for me or who I've searched for during a particular time in my life when I needed them. And then afterwards, I didn't have as much of a relationship with. They came and went right at that point in my life when they were relevant. And also, there are some deities who have turned up for me or who I've searched for during a very particular time in my life when I needed them. Some of them I'm still close with, and some of them less so, but perhaps I will be again, just like certain people or friends who have come in and out of my life. Now, in terms of finding a deity you might want to work with, you're right. Sometimes they do just make themselves known to you. There might be a symbol or color or animal you might feel a connection with or that just keeps popping up in your life or in your dreams. Research is definitely your friend here. So if you are seeing patterns like that, but don't know which deity it's associated with, just give it a Google or get a book of gods and goddesses from the library. Do you keep seeing peacock feathers everywhere? That could be the goddess Hera reaching out to you. Do you keep seeing wheels or wings or double snakes? Hermes could be your guy. You get the gist. But you can also figure out what energy you're hoping to connect with or what sort of strength or guidance you need. There are deities associated with everything you can imagine. Success, love, the sun, the moon, gentleness, power, you name it. Whatever you need in your life or hope to spend time honoring or learning from is a really good place to start. Finally, I'll say, as I often do, trust your instincts. If there is a god or goddess you just feel a particular affinity for and don't even know why, that's okay. Just read about them and figure out some small way to incorporate their symbolism or story into your life. You can light a candle to them. You can have a figure of them or a symbol of theirs on your altar. You can wear a necklace or a ring that somehow alludes to them. Anything to let them know that you are paying attention to them and thinking about them and conjuring them into your life. I also really love 
poetry or writing letters, some way that you can communicate to this deity that you are here, you are listening to them, you are open to messages from them, and that you are grateful for their presence in your life. That really goes a long way. Just like any friendship or relationship, you'll learn more about them as you go, and things will change and evolve over time. This is a relationship that you're going to nurture. And you know what? If it's not the right fit or it doesn't work out, that's okay. You can find another one. Our deities represent the aspects of ourselves and each other that we feel called to focus on and honor. Only you can ultimately answer which one or ones are right for you. Just be open to the fact that they can make themselves known in all sorts of metaphorical or surprising or mysterious ways. Let me know who you find or who finds you. And I'm sending you all my blessings for a happy, holy friendship. Now, on to my guests, or perhaps a better word to use would be co-hosts, because as I said, this is really kind of a crossover episode between The Witch Wave and the amazing Missing Witches podcast. Missing Witches goes looking for the witches we've been missing throughout history and with their Witches Found series, Modern Witches 2. The Missing Witches podcast was started by Risa Dickens and is now co-hosted with her by Amy Torek. They are both very gifted artists and musicians and writers and witches based outside of Montreal. And with the Missing Witches podcast, you can really hear all of their skills be put to use. When people ask me for other witch podcast recommendations, Missing Witches is always at the top of my list because it is informative and intersectional and so, so inspiring, not to mention beautifully produced, so a real pleasure to listen to. I've learned so much from Risa and Amy and their show, and so when it became time to try and figure out a way to celebrate the release of my book, I immediately thought that they would be perfect to have on the Witch Wave to help guide me in a discussion about it, and frankly, it was also an excuse for me to get to collaborate with them because I'm such a big fan of what they do, and I think you will be too. So what you're about to hear is first me interviewing them about missing witches, and then them interviewing me about waking the witch, and then we get into some really juicy conversation about witches and feminism and all kinds of other magic. In my experience, if you put a few podcasters together, odds are you're going to have an interesting discussion, and I'm so happy to share ours with you now. Risa joined me rather spontaneously from the woods, and Amy joined me from her home, both outside of Montreal via Skype. Risa Dickens and Amy Tarek, welcome to the Witch Wave. Hi, Pam. Hi, thank you so much for having us. 
I'm so, so thrilled you're both here. And just so we can get your name and voice differentiations, can you tell me who is talking? Hi, this is Risa. And the deep voice is Amy. (laughs) I love it. And some listeners may be familiar with your voices already because you both have one of my favorite podcasts, Witchly or Otherwise, that you (laughs) create together called Missing Witches. And for a little bit of background, one of the reasons that I invited you both on the Witch Wave is because... I've been asked to do as much as I can to talk about my book, but I was feeling a little bit shy about just having a me, me, me episode. (laughs) And I wanted to also spread the good word about Missing Witches because your podcast is so special. So we're going to have kind of an unusual format where I'm going to ask you both some questions and then the tables will turn. How does that sound? (laughs) Oh, can't wait to talk to you about your book. And yeah, we're super thrilled that you like our podcast because we are listeners since the day we launched ours. So we're really excited. Aw, our podcasts have crushes on each other. (laughs) Yeah. Hardcore. So for those who may be new to the Missing Witches podcast, you both describe it as a, quote, research-based feminist occult storytelling project, uh, which is so great. Risa, why don't we start with you? How did Missing Witches come to be, and what is your intention for the podcast? Yeah, so actually, originally... I was brainstorming a a fictional podcast. And in the fictional podcast, I thought maybe that these two women would have a podcast where they would do witch history. (laughs) And then then somehow that seemed so much more interesting than whatever fiction I was trying to cook up. Yeah. And then I called Amy about it because she's like the natural collaborator for that. Our sort of witch improvisations predate the podcast together by years. And we've just been like kind of creatively inspired by each other. Amy is like a huge inspiration to me as a maker and as a person. And so I called her and told her I had this idea for a podcast called Missing Witches, where we would just get to do this history research. And Amy was like, yeah, fuck, we're doing that. And then like three, <laughs> three seconds later, three seconds later, she was like, I've claimed the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook. I have the Gmail account. The URL is available. It's a sign like we're doing this. We're launching. So that's kind of the story of how that little light started. <laughs> I think that I, I jumped on it so um, immediately because as soon as Risa said it, I was like, oh, obviously, that's what we should be doing. I mean, these, these were conversations that we were having, like Risa said, for 10 years before we started formalizing the curiosity into the podcast. So it seemed like such a natural and obvious thing for us to do. I was almost like, duh, why? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did, haven't we been doing this for however long? Exactly. Yeah. So the thrust of Missing Witches seems to be about featuring a historical figure and sometimes someone who's still alive who is 
someone who either has identified as a witch or who we might identify as a witch due to either their orientation in the world or the kind of work that they make. So how do you decide which witch you're going to feature (laughs) on each episode? Amy, why don't we start with you? The first season, Risa had a few witches already in mind because the idea had sort of been germinating, like she said, as fiction. But I think it's just the, the ones that we get really excited about. Like, I remember Risa calling me up to tell me this story about Monica show, And I was like, ooh, 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 tell me, tell me more, tell me more. So uh, whoever gets us really excited, we make a long list, and then we chop it down to who gets our witchy juices flowing the most and whose story we want to research more and whose story we want to tell. Mm. And some of the witches that you featured, uh, I'll just run down a quick list of some of my favorite episodes. You've done Pamela Coleman-Smith, who many listeners might know as the illustrator of what was originally called the Rider-Waite tarot deck, mm-hmm. and now we call it the Smith-Waite tarot deck because it's so many of her images or all of her images, at least which were you know certainly based on earlier tarot, but which she really made her own and... And, you know, these are the images that have become truly iconic. For sure. And then Zora Neale Hurston, Doreen Valiente, who's one of my favorite witches, <laughs> who's really, I suppose we could call her like the godmother of Wicca if Gerald Gardner was the godfather. Totally. It's a really eclectic bunch of people. And then you do have some folks who are still with us. Z Budapest is a really good example. And Amy, I definitely want to talk to you about that episode in particular. Mm-hmm. I suppose I'll just dive right in. So we've talked about Z on this podcast before and about how she is a very controversial figure in the witchcraft community and in the world overall. I should also say that, Amy, you taught me how to correctly pronounce her full name. I've been calling her <laughs> Zuzana this whole time, and, and you taught me that it's Zuzana Budapest. Zuzana, yeah. Like, again, that, that's my Hungarian heritage coming through with the European pronunciation. Hell yeah. So <laughs> can, can we talk about that episode in particular? Because... That for me, I mean, I love all of your episodes, but that episode for me really sang because you braided together history, also your own autobiography with some of your family roots, as well as diving into the controversy that surrounds Z in terms of some of her transphobic comments that she's made. So how did you go about approaching that episode, Amy? Props to Risa. She was the one who came upon uh, Zhuzhana's name first, I think, and, and put it on our shortlist. And when I read about her a little bit, and, and you hear about this in the podcast, I, I read that she had walked after the Hungarian Revolution. She had walked from uh, Hungary to Austria as a refugee, and my father had done that same walk at that same time. So I said to Risa, like, I would love to to this episode you know we she does most of the writing there are certain episodes that I've written that I was like I really want because this is very personal to me it was the first time that it was something that was like you know I need to write this mm-hmm. <laughs> not just for our listeners but like for my own self and for my own digging into my Hungarian 
heritage and ancestry. So the name was shortlisted. I said, of course, you know, I, I have to do this story. And Risa was very supportive of that, and I'm grateful for that. So the research started like it does with any of our witches. We start with Google. <laughs> we read as many articles as we can, and then once we've really shortlisted, then we start buying books. I was into her books, like the Holy Book of Women's Mysteries, and and sure, it uses gendered language, but, you know, a lot of feminist work does use gendered language because it's reactionary to patriarchy. So I get that, and that's fine. But I happened to be on Twitter one day, and I'm not on Twitter that often, but someone had said, you know, Z, turf, this, that. And I was like, oh, is this the case? I didn't know this. You know, I just started my research on her. And so then, of course, I, I Googled those terms together. And that's trans-exclusionary radical feminist, correct? Exactly. Or- yeah, yeah. Turf is just like you said. And so I, I called Risa and I said, okay, you know, there's a hiccup. Because most of our episodes, Risa will agree, are, are love letters. We make no secret of our editorializing of, of stories. And they're love letters to the witches that we're featuring. But this had to be a little bit different because it, it started as a love letter. But then it was kind of like, but. And we we said, you know, we can either toss this or we can talk about it. And Risa and I are always on the on team talk about it, I think. I love that. And I thought we were going to get some backlash, like strictly just for featuring her, regardless of how we did it. But we really didn't. It was all quite positive. And I think that's because, again, Risa and I have this sort of mandate of of compassion, you know, which has been demonized so much. So we want to really take a gentle hand as often as we can and talk about why they're amazing. But sometimes, you know, we have to uh, seek the rot in the uh, in the ancestors bones and dig it up and air it out you know yeah and it's it's a really tough one because in the writing of my book which uh, we'll get to in a little bit but uh, of course I had to mention her and talk about her because she is the founder of Dianic Wicca or you mm-hmm. know very feminist feminine focused goddess focused Wicca which yeah. is so influential to contemporary witchcraft and to intersectional feminist witchcraft but then mm-hmm. you're like ah fuck <laughs> like, <laughs> when you start yeah. you know hearing some of the statements that she continues to make to this day about she believes only cisgendered women are witches or they're the only people that she wants included in her different circles and groves and and all of this absolute crap, honestly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I mean, that's mm -hmm. awful and there's no excusing it. But she also, you know, you actually opened my ears up to the fact that she was involved in a lawsuit that the the result of which uh, maybe you can actually walk us through that a little bit, both of you. I just wanted to jump in a little bit before mm. that to say, I think what was important to us in telling that story or in deciding to tell that story was there is so much fear and pain often around being a woman and being a witch, but even more so around being a trans person and a (laughs) queer person. So Mm. to make a space to say like, no, we've declared this space a safe space for women and for our magic, like that's holy and that's huge and that's important, deserves to be cherished. But we then feel and sort of beautifully expressed in that episode, I think that then it's on us to like make an even bigger space and to make 
circles of protection for people who experience more violence than we do, you know? So anyway, that's my tangent, but I thought that was the most important thing in that episode. And I understand if women who have been advocating for safe spaces for women for generations, for decades, don't see that right up front in front of them. But I think if you spend two seconds in a trans community where they're fighting for their lives in a more profound way, you can see that we have more of a responsibility there. And there's some really deep magic there if we can hold and cherish those people. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And it's honestly that attitude and that approach that makes me love the both of you and love your podcast <laughs> so much. I know we're focusing on this one particular episode, but you know that really comes through in terms of the way that you curate the podcast. I mean, you have people from so many different backgrounds and it's a real widening of the circle, inclusionary stance, and I'm just so grateful for it. Yeah, intersectionality was definitely like our first guiding principle, I think, even yeah. before compassion. Absolutely. So if we could just finish up the Z Budapest story. Oh, right. Okay. So she had a little witch store and she was doing a tarot reading and the police came in and arrested her for doing witchcraft. And she took this battle. It took her a decade, I think, eight years, maybe 10 years. She took the battle to the state Supreme Court and basically was eventually finally acquitted mm. and changed the law in California. So if there are any California witches out there who make a little cash from your craft, then, you know, maybe Z Budapest isn't all bad. Yeah. Question mark? Again, yeah. that, like, that was the thrust of the episode. It was like, no one is all good or all bad, but we have to be thinking about our legacy and what message we're leaving behind when we're not there to qualify our statements anymore. Absolutely. Now, you're both Skyping in from Canada. You're <laughs> both north of Montreal. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we should say that Amy is Skyping in from her home and Risa is like crouched in the woods somewhere, <laughs> which is all too appropriate. So um, thank you both. But I wanted to ask, what is the Canadian witchcraft scene like these days? Because certainly down here in the States, it's exploding, especially in urban centers, but really all over the place. And in terms of even my own listener base and readers, it's people from all over and it seems to be growing and growing. Are you finding that's the case up north as well? Yeah, it's a funny question. I would say like, yes, unqualified, yes. It's exploding. We see people reaching out to us from across Canada and it really intersects with, you know, the environmental movement and the pressure up here to try to figure out a way to meet our climate targets and resist conservatism that we're kind of experiencing coming up from the States and the, the sort of backlash that's happening everywhere. Like witches are a force to be contended with in that fight and they're finding each other. But I would also say like Amy and I are kind of in some ways the wrong people to ask that because as you said, we live in the woods. Like yeah. <laughs> we, we left Montreal behind both of us in the last couple of years. And uh, we both kind of live in the middle of nowhere. And that's been like incredibly sustaining and enriching and like, balancing and peace finding but it, it means that sometimes I think at least for myself but I feel really sometimes out of touch with trends or like which as a trend or like scenes and then we just had our first live show this weekend about dance ritual in a united church that was like kind of a really badass incredible experience but like to actually do our show in front of 
human people, <laughs> to see people <laughs> coming out of the woodwork who connect with this current that we are all sort of touching and raising was really rad. So, so yes, and also I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, what do you think? I am on the missing which is social media, I think, more than Risa. So I, I'm on the ground in a digital sense, you know, despite being in the woods. Obviously, it's having a, a very major moment, witchcraft, you know, identifying as witch, claiming the title of witch. And I think it's happening all over the world. We get emails from all over the world, but um, especially because it is such a vast term that it encompasses everything from like at the risk of using labels, a black lipstick goth to a barefoot hippie to a anarchist activist, you know, any kind of dissident rebel. If you're a feminist, if you're um, into herbology, all of these things sort of can come under that heading of witch. Yep. And as our society grows increasingly more slash less feminist you know it's very it's a very weird time to be alive let me just say mm, <laughs> but, yeah. because you know in the in the bubble that I live in that Risa lives in that presumably you kind of live in yourself it's like we surround ourselves with uh, self-expression and love and intersectionality and but then you go even even online like I say and you see that that's not how everybody is talking and how everybody's feeling oh my goodness yeah and if I could just uh, interject and say I don't know how much you guys are following the news down here but bodily autonomy for women is like fucking being relitigated all over again and all of these states are banning abortion left and right it's really really horrifying and you to sort of get back to your question you had asked about like networks of witches and i saw something come up and i immediately wrote to the person who had posted it it was a basically and i'll say this to your listeners too um we're your Canadian auntie now. If you need to go on a quote-unquote vacation for a couple weeks, we'll help you make your reservations, quote-unquote. We'll take selfies with you. So yeah, to your listeners, hit us up at Missing Witches if you need a quote-unquote Canadian aunt to go and visit for a couple weeks if things really get too harsh. But uh, yeah, the the internet has really helped the witches come out of the broom closet to a a massive degree because we can still be networking, but we can be doing it in secret. And the thrust of what we do is Reese's tagline that she came up with was, we go looking for the witches we've been missing. Yes. And so I think when you go looking for witches, you find them literally everywhere. You know, some of them are a little more out in <laughs> summer, but when you start talking to people about it, yeah, it's quite amazing. I feel really strongly, although sometimes I question our decision to include women who don't self-identify as witches, but I do feel like telling like a history of female shamans in the Philippines and how they were colonized and burned and called witch during the same period as the witch hunts in Western Europe or telling a story of Maria Sabina, uh, like a healer in the mountains in Oaxaca, that to reach out and tell those stories and suggest that those women are part of the same process and have been victimized and violated in like very unique and specific ways to them, but also in ways that are communal. I feel like telling those stories together and claiming the headline, which kind of gives us some power. And I do love that in your book, Pam. I think we're like close to turning the tables and I want to get there (laughs) because I love that stance that you take in your book that like the teen mall witch has as much 
value and as much power and as much strength in her little heart as, you know, the most sacred, dianic 50-year-old queen. I don't know. Teresa, it's funny that you and I are collaborators because I've, I've made, like, very similar notes here. Yeah. <laughs> um, your, Pam, your use of the, the term permission slip. Like we've had emails, people saying like, you know, I don't necessarily feel like I'm ready or or deserving or worthy of of claiming that term, which, and obviously our answer is always, it's already yours. Yeah. And so you use the term permission slip and I'm lifting and keeping that term forever. So thank you so much. Well, okay. So before we dive into all things book, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Fat and the Moon. Fat and the Moon is a line of handcrafted herbal body care for radical beings, and I've been a huge fan and customer of theirs for a really long time myself. Fat and the Moon's products range from non-toxic deodorant to makeup to herbal remedies for the most intimate of issues, and their potions are herbalist-formulated and handmade to order by one of their incredible makers. They work with plants that are abundant, ethically harvested, and organically cultivated, and combine them in formulations that are radically non-toxic. Fat and the Moon's potions exist for all bodies, genders, and backgrounds, and their potions come in reusable, recyclable containers with no superfluous packaging. And Witch Wave listeners get 20% off from Fat in the Moon by using offer code WITCH. So dive on in to fatandthemoon.com. That's F as in Frank, A-T, and themoon.com. And use offer code WITCH for 20% off your purchase now. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Risa Dickens and Amy Torek from Missing Witches. All right. So this is the part where I hand the reins over to you both, and you are now the interviewers. So hit me with your best shots, ladies. Risa, let's spring back since we both wanted to jump off from the same point, which was yeah. you were talking about the, the mall witch versus the high priestess. And one of the things that I picked out was um, whether it's heartfelt or flippant, public or private, that these are all equal. Pam, can you talk a bit about like the mass equality of witchcraft and that idea that sort of comes through in your book? Sure. I think for me, when I was writing this book, and and it's also my approach when I'm putting together this podcast, I've discovered the fact that there really is no gatekeeper to witchcraft. And I know some hardcore Wiccans might disagree with that Mm -hmm. because they might think, hey, you know, I've gone through three degrees of initiation and I've been studying and so on and so forth. And there are also folks who identify as witches because of some family lineage and some tradition that's passed down that is extremely not just important to their identity, but often is an aspect of themselves that has been under threat for a long time. And so they feel really protective of that. So I don't mean any disrespect to those folks, but truly there really is no one way to be a witch. And in my research, I've discovered that the word witch 
historically has more often been used as a negative epithet against someone than it has Definitely. as this, you know, badge of honor. Certainly the English word witch anyway has really only started to become more positive in the 19th century. And at the same time, as the first wave of feminism was cresting, so too was there a more, I don't know, romantic or sympathetic uh, reframing of witches. So to sum up, I just feel like the word is so elastic, and it means so many different things to different people. And, and it's all meaningful, and it's all potentially really empowering. Yeah. And I think that's what's so attractive, again, to me about the word is that it's a label, but it's like the least labely label because it could mean an infinite number of things. Absolutely. Yeah, I felt so connected to your descriptions of playing with the word as your self-identity, you know, that like sometimes it's tongue in cheek and sometimes it's empowering and sometimes you don't really want to get into it with everybody you know mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. sometimes it's like a banner that you're really ready to wave and um and you sort of describe building that identity over your life I wondered if you would tell us more about that process in your life and then maybe about that process as it was affected by the writing of the book. Oh, yeah. And it's constantly evolving. And I imagine it is for the both of you, too, and, and for a lot of listeners and hopefully readers. You know, I have been doing some form of magic ever since I was a kid. And I actually think a lot of children do magic very naturally. <laughs> you know, I think we enter this state of deep imaginal play very intuitively. But, you know, a lot of people outgrow that phase and I just grew further into it. And, you know, I was really attracted to mythology and anything where there were female monsters and witches and magical protagonists and then, you know, it evolved into just, you know, a deep, deep interest in all things magical and mythological, both in my reading and in the kind of art that I was attracted to, music I was attracted to. And eventually that led me to, you know, the witchcraft section of the library and different workshops <laughs> and actually doing, you know, what we might think of as more literal spells or more, I don't know, traditional spells, though I have a problem with the word traditional too here. But yeah, that's really how it started is just never growing out of that magical phase of my life. Yeah, I loved in the book you you talked about, um, I think it was you and your sister sort of came upon this magical space that, I mean, a lot of people would probably walk by and said, oh, that's a swamp, yep. you know, or that's a puddle. But to you, it was a mystical. And I think children and witches sort of have the magical power of x-ray vision where we can see past what's there and see the magic behind the facade. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you say outgrow, why does that happen? And at what point do people lose their magical vision, do you think? And why? Yeah, I think it's socialized. And I think a lot of folks, unfortunately, have parents who start telling them, 
you know, certain things aren't real or aren't true or only little kids believe in. (laughs) And I think you really have to strike a balance. And I should say I'm not a parent. And I certainly know that everybody does their best. And you don't want your kids to walk around being fools and believing in nonsense or bullshit. I understand. But on the other hand, I was really blessed that my parents, they're both really artistic. My mom's a painter and my dad's a musician. And, you know, they both had other day jobs and such. But at their core, they're these really spiritual, artistic, sensitive people. And they just never trained that out of me. You know, they didn't actively encourage it either. They just let me be me. And that was a real gift that I appreciate more and more as I get older. Uh, Risa is a new parent. So do you have any tips for her raising her little witch? Oh, my goodness. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I would just say to allow your child to unfold and whatever they're naturally interested in to, you know, really encourage that sense of wonder. And I imagine Reese is going to be pretty awesome at that anyway, (laughs) probably doesn't need my advice. But that's what I would say, you know, I was never shamed for believing in magic or for loving fairy tales or mythology. I was never told that it was time to put those books down or stop watching those cartoons or whatever. And, you know, I'm 38 now and I still love cartoons and magic and (laughs) mythology and our apartment is stuffed with all kinds of magical objects. And, you know, I think it's a really beautiful way to be because it feeds your imagination and it fills your heart. Yeah, I feel so excited about being a parent. There's so many ways that we can like bring hope into the world and to bring magic into the world. And like, I feel really like inspired by the idea that like there have been parents like your parents and like mine out there. And there have been artists out there who like allowed a spark in the world that was free from shame and that allowed for the possibility that things could be totally different than they are. And I want to, I really want to give that to my kid. Amy usually does the witches found interviews, but I did one with, you know, an herbologist and her mom, because she told me, she whispered to me once that her mom had raised her to believe she was a witch. Ah, I love that. And we should just interject to say that witches found is kind of the episodes that you do every other week where you talk to contemporary witches. So go, go on ahead. Yeah, that was an important addition. You know, originally we thought about doing history only. And then I think Amy was so inspired to meet with people as part of building our coven and finding these missing witches that we added this uh, second episode every week where we interview people. And doing this interview with a mother and daughter in my basement while my partner and Celia's dad walked around the lake with our two babies so that they wouldn't be hollering in the background was totally magical and Celia asked her mom if she remembered telling her that she was a witch and getting her to sit and focus on I think it was a a napkin on the table to try to move it with her mind and then they both giggled and then Celia was like maybe you were just trying to keep me busy (laughs) (laughs) it's it's really interesting like I don't know if you guys read recently that article in the New York Times about the placebo effect. It was a really great article, and it really reminded me of magic. Not because I think that 
magic isn't real and we're just tricking our minds and it's all bullshit. But even if that is the case, like, who <laughs> cares? It works. And, yes. you know, I, I often say I'm a pragmatic witch and I would not bother with all of this if it didn't have results and it didn't really work and, you know, changing my life and making me feel more connected to spirit and, and all of that. I actually got a text recently from a very good friend of ours um, who's the mother of two daughters who uh, we just adore. And one of her daughters is, oh gosh, four or five years old. And they just had to put their cat to sleep, which is awful and heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And ever since then, she's been really scared of ghosts. And it's not even, oh, she thinks, you know, the ghost of her cat is floating around. But I'm sure it's just she's afraid and she's sad and she's dealing with death. And so suddenly she's afraid of ghosts. And her mom (laughs) is not a witchy person, but she texted me and said, is there some kind of ritual we could do or magic we could do to help her be less afraid of ghosts? And I was like, yes, I bet you've got some salt in your kitchen. And why don't you, you know, sprinkle it? around the apartment in a circle with her or put a little bowl of salt in every room and tell her that that's going to protect her. And they did it. And she felt better and no longer afraid of ghosts. Now, whether whether or not that actually, you know, protects a home, you know, for scientific or metaphysical reasons, or it was just something that made her daughter feel better. Like, I honestly don't give a shit. It works. Yeah, I think you said like pragmatic, which was pragmatic, the word that you used. But I think that's why our work, the three of us all, all resonates with each other because we are science-minded, practical people. You know, sometimes I think the phrase that gets used is woo-woo. Like we're not not woo-woo and I have nothing against people who are woo-woo. It's just not me. But especially paganism, Mm -hmm. like the earth, the sky. I mean, this is where we get our air that we breathe. It's very practical to me to be pagan, much more than any other religion, really. All of my senses are engaged in in paganism. So, uh, yeah, we're very science-minded people, and we don't think that that's out of line with being a witch in any way. In fact, we did a whole episode with a coven of witches led by White Feather Hunter, an amazing artist and scientist, uh, out of their lab. And their whole practice is science-based. episode. I loved that episode. Again, no disrespect to the woo-woo, but like for me and I think for Risa and for yourself, it is very practical. It is like science-based or evidence-based for lack of a better Yeah, evidence-based I think is a great way of putting it and it's results-oriented. But I really appreciate, you know, the fact that you represent all these different witches in your podcast. And that's what I was trying to do with my book too, where, you know, there are historical figures in there and there's, you know, real history of feminism and people fighting against the Vietnam War and people fighting against, you know, the Nazis and World War II and who who are identifying (laughs) as witches. Like that's all in there, but then there's also fictional figures like, you know, Hermione and Sabrina. I wanted to show the fact and the fiction of the witch and how they feed each other, how they inform each other and change each other, and how all of it has helped me shape my own identity as a witch. Because yes, some of it is from our pagan 
you know, for mothers, for fathers, for people. But a lot of it also comes from the world of art and music Mm -hmm. and fashion and politics and fiction. That's important to me, too. And, you know, at one point in the book, I say the witch is a creature of accretion, by which Mm -hmm. I mean every layer adds and adds and adds to the archetype. And there are more and more facets that are built up. And and that's why I think it's such a fascinating archetype, because it says so much and means so much and has so many different layers to it. I really appreciated your treatment of like the teen pop culture witch. Yes. Because you weren't glib about it in any way, like the way you analyzed them and sort of unpacked, you know, from Sabrina to Macbeth even. And it was really exciting to me. So how do you conceive of like young teenage girls and what their power is? Yes. You know, I really came into witchcraft in terms of casting intentional spells when I was a teenager. I know that's not true for everybody, but a lot of people have that experience. And for me, and I I write about this in the book, some of it is just, I think, for especially cisgendered teen girls, it's such a time of your life when you start to feel like you're coming into this power and you also are learning how to control it. And also all these outside forces are trying to control you and it's intense, right? Like you have sexual power and it's kind of dangerous and risky. And also you can use that power for better or for worse. Your body's changing. At the same time, you're getting all these influences from Um, friends and society and teachers and you feel really judged and kind of out of control of your circumstances in a lot of ways too. So I think, you know, a lot of teen, especially young women gravitate towards witchcraft to, you know, have some sense of control or agency over their lives. So I think that's a big part of it. But I also think, you know, for me, I had other hard shit going on. You know, and I write about this a little bit in the book. You know, my older sister, who's a wonderful person and she's thriving now, she was really suffering from mental illness in very intense, scary ways. And so she was also this volatile figure in my house. And I think when you're a teenager, you start to wake up to, you know, certain trauma or certain, I guess I would say more adult problems, you know, you start to realize, oh, maybe something in my house isn't okay. Or maybe this experience I'm having with someone I have a crush on is unhealthy or I guess it's a loss of innocence is what I'm trying to say in a very roundabout (laughs) way. And so um, magic is both, I think, a metaphor for the transformation and the shape-shifting that is happening to teenagers psychologically and physically, but it is also a literal thing that you can do to try to help yourself feel like you have a little bit more autonomy. Yeah, I just wanted to go back. You're talking about teenage girls and their power. I recently read that the most effective person at changing a conservative adult's mind about the reality of climate change is like a 12 to 14 year old girl. Oh my goodness. 
what's the name of that young woman? Oh, her name just slipped out of my head, but there's this like incredible. Greta Thunberg? Yes. She's like incredible. She's incredible. And talk about also someone who's using her reality as someone who's like neuroatypical Mm. to to like reach a vast community. Like there's 89 climate strikes planned across Canada for the, the global day of climate action coming up in September. And that's like her movement. We've had strikes every Friday going on weeks now led by like students. You have 10 year olds writing to their mayors and their ministers to declare climate crisis. Like those are kids and I have so much faith in their power. And, and I think you're so right. And it's such a, a meaningful message to give to young people. If you have them in your life that like your power is in part your sexuality and is in part your loss of innocence and is in part your innocence and your like your asexuality and just your, your knowledge and your energy and your like pure raw emotion and connection to the world. Absolutely. We're seeing that here in the States too with like um, the Parkland kids. So, you know, all of these kids who are trying to fight for gun reform, which is an issue you guys do not really have, but it's a crazy one down here and a really crucial one, as you know. So you're right. And it's a a teen girl who's been leading that charge as well. So you're absolutely right. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. Longtime listeners to the podcast know that I am obsessed with Mithras candles. They are the most beautiful beeswax candles I have ever seen. And they're handcrafted in Philadelphia. Mithras candles smell intoxicating, and they look even better with their wizardly dripped pillars. They also come in a variety of other shapes, from pyramids to tapers to tea lights, and they give off a warm and gentle glow. I have tons of Mithras candles, and I can't get enough. And now you can get some too by going to MithrasCandle.com and using offer code WITCH for 10% off your first order of 2019. So go to Mithras Candle, that's M as in magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com, and use code WITCH for 10% off your first order of the year. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Missing Witches hosts and creators, Risa Dickens and Amy Torek. Thank you both again for being on the show. I have to say it's pretty wild to have people interviewing me, and it is also (laughs) kind of a fantasy come true. So thank you again. Uh, Thank you so much for reaching out to us and for sharing your book. We feel really lucky to get to get our hands on it early. And, you know, the world can be dark these days. I hate to keep going back to it, except I don't because it's all that matters. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) in Canada, like you've mentioned before, we have abortion rights and we have gun control. And we are holding on to those things by the skin of our teeth. Like those are not battles that are done. Mm. And I think that like, connecting with other witches however you identify that around the world to give each other strength whether in private or in public is kind of one of the most important things we can do right now to fight patriarchy and greed and the shit that wants to eat us absolutely absolutely part of the thing about being a witch that Risa and I talk about a lot is sort of embracing the light and embracing the darkness I hesitate to make a pro and con list because it's sort of, you know, I don't want to put them in those binary terms. So in terms of the writing of your book, 
what were some of the highlights and some of the challenges? Not pros and cons, but like okay. highlights and, and some of the major challenges that you came up against. Yeah. I would say the highlight for me of the book is obviously getting to write about something that I love so much and have studied for most of my life in all these different ways. One section of the book in particular was pure joy to write. A a lot of it was really, really hard. But there's a chapter about art witches, and in particular, five artists that I identify as witches, Leonora Carrington and Remedios Varro, Pamela Coleman-Smith, Hilma Offklint, and Georgina Houghton. And it was so exciting to me to finally be able to frame these female artists as types of witches and to talk about creativity and magic and female autonomy and female authorship or visual authorship as all kind of being part of the same thing or, you know, two sides or maybe that's three sides of the same coin. That to me is what gives me, I mean, the whole book was difficult, but also it gives me a lot of joy. But that notion in particular, I find to be a really liberating one. The fact that our creative work is our magic when we do it with intention. And, you know, if you're not compelled to cast a spell and light candles and all of that, that's fine. If you're writing a poem or you're being an activist or you're starting a small business, whatever it is, that can be a magical offering too. So that was definitely a highlight talking about art and magic for sure. Oh yes, any kind of form of creation is definitely magic making for yeah. sure. The most challenging thing about writing this book and I imagine <laughs> listeners are getting this uh, from hearing me talk about it, is the book is a lot of things. It is a lot of history. It is a lot of pop culture analysis and why are we now celebrating witches so much and why are they popular and what do they mean? You know, that kind of introspection and more broad analysis of this moment in time. It is also a little bit of memoir. And so trying to braid together these three different types of writing was such a challenge trying to get those levers and levels adjusted well in such a way that hopefully the book is still readable and that they're all flowing into each other instead of <laughs> being jarring. Um, that was definitely the, the hardest part. This is like the best alchemy is, you know, when we take things and put them together to make a greater thing. Also magic, right? It's part memoir, it's part essay, it's part research, it's part and that and it's it's very readable. I think Risa and I, you you gave us an advanced copy not that long ago. And I think both of us were like, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll we'll take a look, we'll skim it. And both of us ended up just sitting down and reading the entire Yeah. Aw, <laughs> thank you so much. That really means a lot. It's like it, it really, so readable and so delightful and so exciting. And you know, just from 
from our own interest in real history and research, there's so much good, juicy, real research that it's not like a flaky story or, you know, it's not just sort of fairies. God bless them. They're surrounding me now by this creek. <laughs> but so much good history. I'm like, I can't wait to go back and dig more into those women's lives in particular that you shared with us. Like, you will be quoted on multiple future episodes yeah. of Missing Witches. Yeah. I, Risa, I was thinking the same thing. I was, like, <laughs> mentally highlighting it, like, yeah. oh, we'll read this. Because, yeah. We'll oh. wait till it comes out, though. We don't want to give any spoilers to <laughs> yeah. by reading entire chapters. <laughs> well, by the time this episode airs, it will be out! Hooray! Hooray! But I do want to just thank you from the bottom of my heart for saying all of that, because I respect the both of you so much and to know that you guys think that it's working that the weird combination of genre is working is very affirming for me because I have to say from a practical like marketing perspective my publisher who's been wonderful but you know they've kind of grappled with like how to categorize this and how to pitch it, you know, how to market it really. So I'm really delighted that you think it makes sense. Thank you. Oh, it makes perfect sense. It does. And your audience will eat it up. Oh, I hope so. You hear that yeah. audience? Get your forks <laughs> and knives ready. Eat it. Yes. yes. I know what my sister is getting for Christmas this year. <laughs> yeah. Excuse Spoiler me for alert, you all. Indeed. <laughs> but I have a very brief yes or no question for you, if you don't mind. Oh, please. Have you seen Jinx Monsoon live yet? I am going in just a few weeks. <gasps> I'm so excited. I'm losing my mind with joy and uh, anticipation. Yeah, it's everything you want it to be <gasps> and more. Yeah. Have you yeah. seen Jinx Monsoon? Oh, before? yes. I've seen I've seen Miss Jinx Monsoon many several times. And I've <laughs> never, never once been anything less than blown away, thrilled. Yeah, satisfied wouldn't cover it, but you're going to have an amazing time. And that was one of my favorite episodes. I was like, <laughs> in case you guys missed it, go check out the episode with Jinx Monsoon. It's fantastic. Yes, drag is magic, everybody. I think folks are so sick of hearing me talk about RuPaul by now. So, but it's with good reason, you know, the, the act of building one's identity and playing with one's identity you know, which drag highlights so much, I think is such an important part of the archetype of the witch. And that's why, you know, getting back to an earlier point we've all been making, people can call themselves a witch or think of themselves as a witch for many different reasons. And that can change over the course of your life. And maybe now you're really into crystals or tarot. You know, maybe you'll never consider yourself pagan or Wiccan. Like, that's fine. Maybe you're not into any of that woo-woo shit, but (laughs) you are a badass feminist and you think that the witch is a wonderful symbol for you as a rebel and as a feminine force that refuses to bow down to patriarchal forces herself. You know, that's all important and I think it's all really meaningful and worthwhile. The witch is the ultimate symbol of intersectional feminism. All cultures have witches and they all represent this, you know, iconoclast, strong, independent person and that's why i think so many of us strong independent people tend to gravitate to that absolutely i highlighted this part from your book 
and I'm going to print it up and put it on my wall because it speaks to me so much, where you say that virgins, whores, daughters, mothers, wives, each of these is defined by whom she's sleeping with or not. Mm. The care that she's giving or that is given to her is some sort of symbiotic debt. The witch owes nothing, and that's what makes her dangerous. I love that. And then you say that they commune with the spiritual realm freely and free of any mediator. And I think that is so key to why they've been the target of so much oppression and why there's so much power there. You don't need a mediator to have access to your own power. It's such a kick-ass part of your book. I really, really appreciate you sharing it. Oh, thank you so much. And I think that comes through with all the witches that you highlight on your podcast, whether living or in the, in the next realm. You know, <laughs> these are people who have engaged in risky behavior. And most of all, the risk is just being themselves, right? It's trying to live a life of full purpose and intention and often going against the grain because still so many of our religious structures, our government structures, our business structures, our social structures are head up and controlled by cis, straight, white, I will add, often Christian men. And <laughs> there's nothing wrong with individuals who might fit that profile. But when that is the only perspective that you have been fed for most of your life, for all of your life, for generations, I believe that it's incredibly destructive and incredibly toxic. And the witch is one way forward. The witch is one path through that wilderness to make space that is safe and generative and collective and I believe thoroughly magical. Mm -hmm. To make space and to take up space, to allow yourself to take up space, I think is one of the, the biggest things too. Absolutely. Well, speaking of taking up space, I don't want to take up any more of yours. I'm so grateful to you both for making time to interview me, first of all, but also for the love and craft that you put into the Missing Witches podcast. It is so well-researched. There's so much heart and brain and spirit, and it's beautifully produced as well. So big, big, big thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much. And where can people find Missing Witches? All the podcast places. <laughs> <laughs> Missingwitches.com and then uh, yeah, on Instagram at Missing Witches and then yeah, Spotify, Google Play, uh, Apple Podcasts. Excellent. Missingwitches.com. Excellent. Did we say that one already? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also missingwitches.com. <laughs> also, did we say missingwitches.com? <laughs> and also, guys, missingwitches.com. <laughs> well, I'm so glad that we found each other, and I wish you just all of the love and creativity and joy that you can possibly muster because you have brought so much of that into my life and my ears. Thank you both again. Thank you, and thanks to your beautiful listeners. We're so happy to be here. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Risa Dickens and Amy Torek of the Missing Witches podcast for being so generous, supportive, and game, and wickedly, wonderfully smart. 
Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Drop me an email at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the witch wire. The Witch Wave is produced and recorded by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was edited by Rachel Jacobs. Thank you, Rachel, and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Special thanks go to Matt Freeman and Chiquita Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website, witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us lots of sparkly stars. It really does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WitchWavePod. And check out my Witch Emoji for iPhone by going to Witch Emoji or downloading it in the App Store. And please consider buying my book, Waking the Witch, which is out now. I've also got a ton of events and appearances coming up this month, as well as throughout the rest of the year. So go to pamgrossman.com slash events to find out about those. I can't wait to see you on the road. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.